I'm going to invite uh, Josie uh, and Dan, who are going to re- do our reading this, uh, this evening. It's from Ecclesiastes 2. If you've got one of our Bibles, it's on page 670. Thanks, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom, and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fool walks in in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had told for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This, too, is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This, too, I see is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases God, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it all over to the one who pleases God. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. 
like to invite Phil up now as he comes up. Let me just pray. Lord God, we thank you for the privilege of listening to your word. We thank you for the time that Phil has dedicated to listening to you. We thank you that his words are not just his, but are you speaking through him. Please prepare our hearts and help us to listen and put into action what we learn from this evening. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got uh, a worksheet for you if you if you want to follow uh, the points on that worksheet. Um, I've also got a, a little section called Keywords. Um, if, you're, um, if you're a little bit like me uh, and you struggle to follow the speaker, one way of doing that is by ticking off each word as the speaker mentions those words. Uh, it's quite a little natty little tool. Um, keeps you focused, but also um, gives you a bit of an idea of the, the, the words that are going to crop up. Last week, we, we started uh, this series in Ecclesiastes. Um, and as, as was said last week, the speaker in this book, Ecclesiastes, is a person called the teacher. What he does in this book is he sits himself down, imagining he was Solomon, the, the great king of Israel at the time. And in that character, he teaches the lessons that we're beginning to read about. And we see that all going on here in this chapter. What the teacher does is he looks at a couple of things that the world would argue give you real meaning, achievement, accomplishment, pleasure, and wisdom. And he comes to the same conclusion each time he examines these two things. And the conclusion is this. They're meaningless. What does he mean by meaningless? Well, what he means is that whatever we do, however much we accomplish, we're always being frustrated by this fallen world. For for example, because of the fall, our world is always decaying. And because our world is decaying, it means much of our energy in life is focused on updating and repairing and replacing and retraining and relearning. Life is a continual fight against decay. And decay is always going to win. We're going to run out of puff and energy and life long before the job of fixing things is over. The other thing is, the world is governed by the inevitability of death. That too is a consequence of the fall. The sun rises, the sun sets. The seasons come, they go, we're born, but immediately we're, we're doomed to die somewhere along the way. In this sense, our lives are meaningless. The Hebrew word for, for meaningless describes, is actually the word vapor or breath. It's, it's, the, it's the image that the teacher wants us to, to use to summarize our existence in this world. So the world is scarred by the weariness of sin's decay and the inevitability of death. And the effects of this are everywhere. And it's a bleak picture, isn't it? Let's be honest, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not a, a, a joyful tone that he sets. But in exposing this meaninglessness, the teacher reaches the point actually where he's forced to seek hope in it all. To find meaning, to find the place where there is purpose and a future. And for us today, the situation of life in a fallen world is the same. 
People are pursuing many different things to find meaning. And yet, because our world is still fallen and decaying, those things are still empty and devoid of meaning. And and the thing is, if you think about it, because this way of seeing the world is so bleak, so realistic, this is the one thing that our culture tries really hard to ignore. And even the Christian culture really tries hard to ignore the reality that the teacher teaches in this book. You just have to go to your telly, turn on God TV, and you will see that. The fallenness of the world is just ignored. Rather, God, according to God TV, wants me to be prosperous, wants me to be healthy, wants me to be happy. By that, God wants everything to go my way, like a good old genie in the lamp. And this is where we need to follow the words of the teacher, because he doesn't pull his punches. He paints a realistic, a real-life picture of the world, and he says, okay, so if this is bleak, if this is meaninglessness, then where is the hope? Where is the hope? So let's turn to this passage this evening, because the first thing he examines is the pursuit of pleasure. That's the first point I want to talk about this evening, the pursuit of pleasure. Look with me at verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. So in that persona of imaginary Solomon, the teacher saying to his heart in verse 1, look heart, let's just have a sit down and chat here. I'm going to test you. I'm going to find out what's good. I'm going to give you pleasure and we'll see where it leads. Elsewhere, actually, just as an aside, elsewhere in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, pleasure in and of itself, in and of itself, is actually commended. So pleasure is a good thing in Ecclesiastes, but what the teacher is looking at here is, is the pursuit of pleasure, not pleasure per se. It's kind of like chasing it in order to satisfy your need for meaning and significance, to find meaning and significance in pleasurable things. So look at verse 4 with me. He, 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 he starts off with projects and industry. Verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks, reservoirs, bought male and female slaves. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone else in Jerusalem. Do you see, he's, he's just seeking everything that his hands can get hold of. In other words, he, he wants to do something important, something that's going to last, something that's going to be his legacy. He accumulates great possessions. Look at, look at what Solomon possessed in verse 8. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. 
that, that phrase at the end there, my wisdom stayed with me, means he's kind of keeping his objectivity. So this is still a test, still an examination. He's, he's looking at it from outside and, and, and seeing where it leads. And initially, the end seems hopeful. Verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. Solomon was pleased with all he achieved, but the pleasure eventually faded. Look at the next verse. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. It's, it's no surprise, really, is it? It's what he said from the start, verse 1. It all proved to be meaningless. It reminds me of an account I read in Bob Geldof's biography a few years ago. It, it happened just after the Band-Aid concert of 1985. That's a long time ago, I know. So just uh, for those of you who can't remember it or just have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, Band-Aid was a concert that gathered some of the greatest names in pop music to raise aid relief for the country of Ethiopia that was in the grip of a terrible famine. Now, now just to give you a bit of a flavor, Band-Aid wasn't just a, it wasn't just a, a, a meh kind of concert. It was the big global uh, event. It, it, it almost kind of that era-defining de- historical event, that sense of where were you when Band-Aid happened event. It was mega if I can use a a younger person's word. It was a miracle of organization as well. Bob Geldof rarely thought he could pull it off, but he did. And he recalls how at the end of the concert, once all the music had faded, all the people were slowly filing out. And one person came up to him and asked him the question that haunted him for years after. The question was simply this. Is that it? Do we now just go home? In the biography, he he realized, uh, in retrospect, that it was probably uh, just a bit of cheeky banter. But for Bob Geldof, on that stage at the time, it stung him to the core. Because it reduced everything he'd accomplished on that day to nothing. The question showed him there was always more to be done and that what had been done would not last and eventually fade. Even something as important as what Bob Geldof had done is ultimately meaningless. And in the same way, the teacher tells us that pursuing projects, possessions, uh, projects and possessions, it's ultimately meaningless. They gain us nothing And in the end, our achievements are rarely remembered. But then the teacher moves from pleasure to something that sounds far more meaningful. He pursues wisdom. This is verse 12, and the second point, the pursuit of wisdom. Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that the wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. 
Now, now, listen, just, just to get the, the kind of the shock of what he's saying here, in the Bible, wisdom is something that's completely the opposite to folly. So folly is a reckless cutting God out of the picture so that our actions have no moral accountability, no social responsibility, no godly framework to act as a break on our sinfulness. Folly is letting the handbrake of godliness off and rolling down the hill headlong into wherever it leads absolute reckless madness. Wisdom, on the other hand, is a godly application of knowledge to the benefit of others and the glory of God. Surely this has purpose and meaning. It looks like he's found something grounding in it, something worthwhile, something great, something to satisfy the soul, something meaningful. And he says it's better than folly. Wisdom is better than folly. And verse 15, though, this is his conclusion. The fate of the fool will overtake me as well. Bang! It's hard-hitting, isn't it? In other words, even wisdom cannot solve the problem that death ends everything. And he's saying, so to pursue wisdom... To build a reputation and ground your identity and wisdom is a foolish work, ultimately, ironically. Because in a fallen world, death ends it all. What he's saying is that whatever he puts his his hand to, his mind to, his heart to, is spoiled. He looks at all of life and finds everything is ruined by the effects of a a fallen world. And we see that today. You can organize a rock concert for a humanitarian cause, but it will be forgotten. You can build a palace, it will fall into ruin. You can amass great wisdom, yet you will be forgotten just like the fool. In other words, life in this world is tainted by our fallenness. It's life outside Eden. It's meaningless. It's transient. The effects of a sinful world reduce everything to rubble. And it leads to a sorrow. A sorrow of emptiness. Look at verse 17 and 18 with me. So I hated life, he says. I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And there's a sense of sincerity in this emptiness. His hatred comes out of a world where meaning, purpose, identity, significance cannot be found because fallenness is everywhere. That's why the teacher returns to his big question of what do we gain in all of this? Look at verse 22. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. He's brutal. In this fallen world, life and all we work to achieve just slips through our fingers. It's a bit like trying to hold water in your hands. It's never going to stay where you want it to. And we will all, at some point or another find ourselves at that point where life is so not the way we want it to be 
so broken, so flawed, so devoid of purpose, so meaningless and hopelessly endless that we hate it. That's real. You're not going to find that on God TV. And that's what life in our fallen world is like. It leaves him and us with that grief of emptiness. We're allowed to grieve this world, you know. We really are. It's right to feel the pain of fallenness around us. Because that's what the teacher knows and expresses. That sense of the frustration of chasing after the wind. But it doesn't end on this note of despair. There is hope. And that's the final point this evening. The teacher's hope, 24 and 26. What is it that allows the possibility of hope? Well, it's when the teacher gives up his pursuit after stuff and status and looks at what he's been given by God. There is the end of it. Look at verse 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. But without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? In other words, even the good things that we, we receive are not achieved by us, but they're gift, gifts from God. And it means a good grounded place to be in our minds and in our hearts and, and with our worldview is where we're humbly enjoying God's gifts just as that. They're God's gifts. There's that, that old um, Victorian uh, children's, uh, children's song, isn't it? Count your blessings, name them one by one. I'm sure everybody over my age, my age and, and above will remember it. Oh, good, some people are shaking their heads. Um, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. It's a lovely little ditty. I won't sing it to you, I promise. But it says, you know, look around you. Count your blessings. See what God has done. It will surprise you what he's done. When we enjoy stuff as gifts from God, that's a sweet relief from our fallenness. And we know we're grounded in this humble way when we have stuff and status in their proper place. When we don't put our hope in pleasure, our trust in wisdom, or anything else to undo the brokenness of this world. And conversely, when they disappoint us, well, actually, we know we're grounded when they don't destroy us. We remember that they're gifts of grace. We keep them in their place. They're gifts from God to be enjoyed, not idols to be worshipped. And yet there's a, there's a warning in the final verse. Let me just read it to you. To the person who pleases him, God's, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness, or, or joy, actually. It's better translated joy. Wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This, too, is meaningless chasing after the wind. The warning is that if we have the perspective on life 
where God gives us nothing, but rather everything we achieve is our achievement, then we end up living for status and stuff, for pleasure, for projects, for possessions, things that are transient. And we need to be careful because these transient things will let us down. For for example, if our, 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 our lives and our identity, our meaning is founded on security and relationships, then we will find that every relationship we have will not be perfect and therefore will ultimately disappoint us. Our expectations will be too high and our realization will be too low. So our relationships won't match our expectations. The sinful people we, 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 we engage with, we commit to, will not fulfill our needs. They will not satisfy because sin will hit one way or another and our dream will be shattered. In that way, everything we pursue or live for will let us down and will be taken from us in death and judgment. We might have built the biggest house. We might have the biggest bank account, the best friends, the happiest family. But what is the profit if it's taken away when we die? And so the end of the matter, as the teacher asks, is this. What is the profit of this life? Much later, the greatest teacher, Jesus himself, asks a similar question in Mark 8.37. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world? yet forfeit his soul. And he goes on to say, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And that's where we find hope. Jesus' invitation is simple. When we give our lives to him as Savior and Lord, we will truly live. When we trust in Jesus, we will still grieve at the brokenness of our world, but we won't be overwhelmed by it by its fallenness or by judgment of death. Why? Because Jesus is not tainted by sin. He's not fallible like idols in a fallen world. And that means he is an immovable foundation to build our lives upon. And it's proved by the fact that he loves us so much that he forfeited his life on the cross so we could gain a place in his kingdom. He's the ultimate gift we can receive from God. And he's not just a temporary relief in a broken world, but an eternal, the eternal savior of our broken world. So life in this world has fallen. The teacher encourages us to enjoy God's creation gifts And be humbly content that they won't last. To pursue them is meaningless, let's face it. But to pursue Christ. To pursue Christ. To ground our lives in him. To give him lordship over us is something that will not fail. It will not perish. It will not spoil. It will not fade. And we will live with the hope that one day he will bring the permanent relief from the fallenness of this world. A relief that we long for. Let's center our lives on him. Let's marvel and thank God for the gift that he has given. 
his son, Jesus Christ. We're going to take some time now just to think through some questions. Um, They're on the sheet, or they should be hitting the... um, There we are, hitting the overhead behind me. Um, Just in our tables, we're going to chat those things through, and in a few minutes, we're going to pray together um, and then sing one last song before we finish. Brilliant. Let's chat through those questions.